You're listening to Ambe, a year of Indigenous reading. Hey, I'm Janessa. Um, Patty invited me here to be one of these civilians on the panel. So I'm Janessa the civilian. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm originally from tiny Ontario, um, but I, I live in Niagara right now, which is uh, Nishinaabe and Haudenosaunee land. Um, for this month, I have actually read five of the books that uh, Patty had on her list, not all with um, like over the last like 30 days, I've read them over the course of a couple of years. Um, but when I was uh, taking the time to like reflect on those five books that I've read, which are, I read From the Ashes, um, In My Own Moccasins, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, Heart Berries, and uh, A Tao of Braven. Um, but when I was reflecting on the stories, I was just thinking about how they're all, they're all very different and each story is like unique and each story is beautiful and it reflects the life of the person who wrote it. Um, but there's a lot of like parallels and similarities. And I feel like when you're reading the books, you can really just see how um, colonization has like affected everybody. And I'd like, I hear, I've heard a lot of statistics on stuff like this, but sometimes I feel like when you just like, focus on the stats and the numbers, like the people and their stories can like fall between the cracks a little bit. So I really enjoyed um, this month and talking about memoirs because I feel like it brings back the human aspect of the story. Um, and then I really connected a lot with um, Alicia Elliott's book, which is A Mind Spread Out on the Ground. And I wasn't really expecting that when I read it. Um, a lot of her stories kind of reminded me of stories that my mom used to share with me um, when I was growing up and went from when she was growing up. And I actually reread it for this month. And there was a, a particular like chapter, I think she calls them essays, but there was a particular chapter where she talked about um, photographs and photographers. And I went to college for photography actually. So some of the um, photographers that she mentions in her book are photographers that we had talked about in school that my professors had talked about. And I, I still remember like um, some of them, like some of my teachers would talk about how these photographers did such a great job capturing like the American West and like the dying frontier and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, wow. And um, one of the photographers that she named in the, her book actually had a series, a photo series on black and indigenous and people of color that was entitled Before They Pass Away. And I was like, and it had me thinking a little bit deeper about some of the stuff that I had to do as a photographer and um, in, in this class. And we had to do this one self-portrait series uh, we had to take like five photos or something and each photo had to like represent something that was important to us or um, that was like an aspect of ourselves. So for one of the photos, uh, I took a self-portrait and I had like feather earrings because I was like, okay, I'm Métis. I'm going to like really showcase this. And I braided my hair. And then when my teacher threw it on the screen for everybody to see, the first thing he said was, wow, I can really see the Indian. You look like Pocahontas. And I was like, oh. 
like, oh, and then, and I'm looking back, I haven't thought about that in so long. I feel like I sort of blocked it from my memory, but reading Alicia's book made me think about that again. And now I look back at it and I'm like, is this my fault? Like, why did I do that? Why did he say that? And then thinking about it deeper made me think about what my responsibilities are as a photographer and how to represent people in a way that represents them fully for who they are and not who we think they should be. Um, yeah, that was just, those are just my thoughts. And that was what I was thinking about and some of the stuff that I connected with when I was reading the book. That's a really good segue to Caitlin's introduction. <laughs> oh, Caitlin, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, um, do you want me to read my poem now yes. as well? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm Caitlin Curtis. Um, I've written two books. My first one was called uh, Glory Happening. And then my second book, um, Native Identity Belonging and Rediscovering God came out almost a year ago. So it came out last year during COVID, which has been quite an adventure. Um, and uh, yeah, both of my books are, you know, memoir in essay and poetry form. Um, and so that's just my favorite style and where I've landed and I can't seem to get away from it. Um, and, you know, you said, Patty, you know, I've struggled with the exact same stuff writing my books because it's, it is kind of terrifying to know that you may change in major ways by the time your book comes out, you may be in a completely different space than when you wrote it. And I was thinking about that in my book native and I actually wrote an afterward and, and it was about this. It was about, I may change by the time you've read this book, I may have changed. And I just want you to know that, that might happen. It's like, I'm just letting the reader know, you know? So I had this at, in the afterward, I said, what you get right now is me. And I pray that as I grow, you hold that space with me. And that as you grow, I hold that space with you. May we look back on our long ago selves with kindness and know that there were always things we should have done better. I can't wait to see where this journey takes us together. Uh, because I wanted to end the entire book with just a note to say, listen, you know, things are going to change again. And, and since I wrote this book, I have changed and, you know, the next book I write will have other things in it. So, so there is this, um, this sense of finality when you finish a book and turn it in, you know, that like, oh my God, you know, this is, here it is, but you just have to say here, here I am right now. And this is, this is the best that I can give. And this is, this is who I am up to this point. This is who I've been. And I'm offering that to whoever needs it. That's just kind of how I've had to think of it. Otherwise, you know, you psych yourself out completely. <laughs> so you just have to kind of, you know, breathe through it. Um, and, you know, another thing that I include in my, my memoir is poetry. I have original poetry, but I don't have enough to do, you know, a collection of poetry. And so I kind of slip my poetry into my books as a way to kind of help us all stop and breathe as we're reading things that can be hard and, and heavy sometimes. So, so this is one of my poems that I'm gonna to read to us um, from my book, Native. God is more language than this. God is more breath than lungs, more oxygen than air, more wind than atmosphere in which to hold it. God is more soul than us. God is more time than schedules, more grace than boundaries, more everything than the imaginable. And yet we are constricted. And yet we say language must be spoken. Breath must be breathed. Oxygen must revive. We say wind is the only spirit. 
This soul is the end of us. Time rules the world. Grace is unreachable and everything is bound, linear, and fathomed. What then is God? God is exactly everything that is and everything that we do not know of. Mystery stacked upon mystery, sacred enveloping sacred, treasure buried within the pebbles of our earth kingdoms. That's lovely. Thank you, Caitlin. There's a lot to think about in that. Um, Demita, if you could, uh, Demita is joining us by telephone. So, <laughs> so we yes. don't see her beautiful face. But, uh, uh, well, that's all right. This time, I'm becoming a zombie. Is anyone else a zombie? A what? Sorry? That's a zombie. Who's oh, a zombie. That's what I thought you were saying a zombie. I have too much, too much Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> um hello everyone and um first of all i have to say i really appreciate being able to have this conversation across so much distance that um doesn't feel really far and i'm really grateful to you patty for inviting me because i am not um have not published a book yet but i'm in the process of writing a political autobiography and the chance to talk about a few of the themes that I'm working with in terms of truth telling and talking about um, events and times that I haven't read a lot of folk with my perspective or the perspective of other black radical women. So I'm, I'm excited about participating in this convo. I also want to say um, when I reread the short bio that Patty included, I want to say that I have always um, been and am dedicated to the role of humble servant in organizations that I've worked for. I really, really appreciate the role that we all play doing the work and getting the work done. And so if, I'm a, if I've been a leader in any way, it's been with an insistence on looking at the importance of looking at honoring the nature of the work that we're trying to do with regard to social justice. Okay, so <clears throat> I just also would love to say that I've been loving hearing um, each of your individual voices. And to add to the story, I am, as I said, writing a political autobiography. Um, I did not know exactly um, that I was going to be doing this. Um, some of you know, likely, that I've been involved in writing political um, ideological tracks and also have written in other guises and have never really um, thought about until recently the unfolding story of what it means to maintain your life as a person with a radical social vision and how you do that living in the midst of the cauldron that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Um, right. Um, is, should, I, should I continue? Yep. Yep, we're introducing ourselves and a little bit about kind of who we are and what you're working on. Okay, so I'm working on this book and I'm in also in the process of making some decisions about how I want to frame the book. So I guess I can stop there. I, by the way, I have not, because I've been working on this book and several of the projects, I have to admit I am that person in the book group who did not read the books. <laughs> And that's okay. I, I, listen, I'm 68 years old. I had to be honest at some point about these things. So yes, the work has been obtaining everything in my life right now. 
I think I think we've all had a month. I mean, I I, I was telling <laughs> I was telling Kaylin I'm not nearly as prepared as I usually am because like all of a sudden it was March 17th. I don't know quite how that happened. <laughs> anyway, so we've got right. one more introduction, um, and then I'm going to start getting nosy. Uh, so Joy. Hello, all. Can you hear me? I'm always checking. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So my name is Joy Henderson. I'm an Afro-Indigenous person <laughs> from Scarborough, Ontario. And so um, I guess for me, like I'm also working on my own memoir too. And so mm -hmm. it's very interesting because as I struggle to write down every last detail, because as I'm trying to capture the community and the people in it and the feeling of it. And it's just, there is no way that words can do it justice. And maybe mm -hmm. as I get older, you know, I can, you know, struggle to actually maybe do it again, or, you know, find another way to, you know, write another book. <laughs> Who knows? This one's very painful. Mm -hmm. So it might be my last. And so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, and then I just kind of think about snapshots. And it was really interesting because a friend said to me yesterday, and she's like, you've come such a long way in 10 years. And I didn't really like the way she said it. But I'm like, no, I am an entirely different person than I was 10 years ago than I was two years ago. And even last year, I mean, we were all, you know, very much changed because of, you know, COVID and just how we bounced with it and so um but it's an interesting process because as you struggle to get it all down it's like but what can I hold back what should I hold back and it's funny because like I was lucky enough to um speak with Alicia Elliott about you know the book and so and she gave me some solid advice as to like what you know to hold back what to keep what to put in right and so and you know she's been very vocal on her thoughts in terms of like you know airing trauma and such on twitter and so it's kind of like it was a really helpful discussion on that um because again it's not just my story it's other people's stories too right and it's like my story and how is it going to affect people like my mother or my family or whatever right and i'm like mm -hmm. so yeah it's a really daunting process and yeah, <laughs> I hats off to people who have done it. I am like in total awe and geeking out about, you know, the wonderful powerhouses. But yeah, so that's kind of where I'm coming at it from tonight. And oh, and I'm a civilian too. So <laughs> I love this term civilian. I'm like, ha ha ha. <laughs> I know I kind of joked about it on Twitter that I'm the pan I make the pan that you know as I'm collecting the panels that it's a mix of authors and civilians. <laughs> civilians, okay, now I know. Okay, context, context is everything. Yes, yes, a mix of author authors and civilians, just just regular folk. Now, uh, there's a couple of themes like from the books that you know from from the authors that, that we've got here today from you know so from native from Dow of raven and then how we get free which is more um that's something that, that that's a book about the uh, combahee river collective that demita was interviewed for so not kind of strictly speaking a memoir more of a, a movement memoir um kind yeah. of refle a reflection on um some a very powerful uh time period and I just wanted to go back to Ernestine because Ernestine, you you frame your story with you know with Raven stealing the sun, and could you give us a very quick a very quick version of that story and kind of how you came to frame 
to frame your story around that because there's similar themes in the way you and Caitlin framed, I mean, because Caitlin used the flood story, um, whereas you used the story of Raven. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Raven and how you, you know, kind of why you framed your story that way? Mm -hmm. Sure, thank you. Um, Raven uh, brought all the gifts to the people here where, um, which is now Southeast Alaska, Northern British Columbia, the um, temperate rainforest uh, along the Northwest coast of what is now America. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he brought dance and fresh water and um, everything, other gifts. Um, and one of the things that he brought was um, light in uh, there was uh, uh, boxes of treasure in an old man's house and Raven found a way to get in there and take those mm -hmm. boxes and bring them to the world. Um, I, mm. I framed Dow of Raven in with that story because although I am by no means a scholar of um, of um, Asian philosophy, I've always admired um, the Tao Te Ching. And in fact, when I first went to California, I remember in San Francisco, I was reading this book that had sort of a summary of all the major religions of the world. And the one that sounded like what my grandmother had taught me when I was growing up was Taoism. Mm -hmm. And so I began reading reading um, the Tao Te Ching, and it led me to the art of war. And mm -hmm. I saw that um, in the art of war, Sun Tzu's advice to his generals about what tactics and strategy were very, very similar to what Raven used when he made his deliberations. And so um, I knew I couldn't call it um, uh, the uh, Raven in the Art of War. So I, um, I uh, fudged a little bit and called it the Tao of Raven. There are some concepts in there from because the Tao Te Ching and, and the art of war agree with one another in many, many of these instances of advice. And, and once again, I'm not saying that as any authority at all, just my own personal impressions of what it has meant to me. And so that's why um, I used uh, Raven and the story of the Box of Daylight to show that the strategies and tactics that, that Raven used are universal and can be used by all of us and should be. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Which is kind of like the flood story in the way that, in, you know, in, in the way that, you know, there was loss and then, I mean, and the flood story is really everywhere. I'm actually struggling with using the flood story in my book because it's, every, it's everywhere right now. But I think there's a mm. reason for that. Right. I think there's a reason why, you know, we're all everybody's talking about about flood narratives and what we can learn. And Caitlin, you 
you, you know, throughout your book, you, you're kind of reflecting on, you know, in different aspects of the flood narrative. How do you, how did you come to that? And kind of how do you see where we are right now? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, so I grew up Southern Baptist and the only creation story I ever learned was Adam and Eve and a very problematic version of that, that I grew up learning. And, um, and so, you know, as an adult, I didn't know until adulthood, young adulthood, that like it, like dawning on me that, oh, like cult, of course, cultures all over the world have creation stories. And of course we all have flood stories, you know, like, of course. And so being someone who loves studying culture and religion, when that finally dawned on me in college, I, I was so excited. And so when I was writing native, I needed like a frame to set it in. Cause that's just how my, my brain works. Like I need like a large frame and then these essays and stories within that frame. And, and native, you know, is, is this journey of identity and belonging. And so that to me is a collective work. It's my stories, but it's our collective work of asking what is on the horizon for our world and for our systems and our personal lives and our communities. And I wanted people to be able to take that with them. And so to me, this, this flood story was perfect. And then, you know, my book comes out in the, in COVID during COVID and I never thought it you know, this story would hit so hard, even for me, as I, when it hit me, you know, this is coming out when we're asking literally like, what's the world going to be like on the other side of this flood in a sense that mm -hmm. we are in. And it became so powerful. I mean, I've been, you know, moved to tears um, numerous times, just thinking about how, you know, in the flood, in the, the Potawatomi flood story, how original man and, and the animals, I imagine they had this like time of grieving before they could even dream of what might be next. And I think that we're doing that. We're, we're having this collective time of grieving and then we're relying on one another to ask what could possibly be next. And, you know, and we're just seeing these, these things happening and experiencing all of these things happening. And can we collectively care for one another as we dream ahead to what could be. And, um, and, you know, it's just like beautiful to me that we have these stories all over the world in so many cultures and religions and ways of understanding how to dream together, really how to ask what comes next for our world and for each other. So mm -hmm. I'm really grateful that, that this story um, is there and that um, it came to me and that I get to be a part of, of the story. So. Now, picking up on, you know, what you talked about, uh, about identity and belonging and collective in Demita in the Combahee river collective in, in the statement, one of the foundational things is black, black women. Are, ooh, who's squeaking? Is that me? No. Sorry. <laughs> Something suddenly uh -oh. is really loud. Um, that black, women are, that black women are inherently valuable. And that was a foundational statement from which you guys built the rest of, you know, kind, kind of the rest of the Combahee River Collective statement. As we're thinking about, you know, like Caitlin had brought up, you know, collective grief, you know, collective imagining, because that's really what, um, that's really what um, the, the collective is, is, you know, from, you know, when I read the book was imagining, imagining possibility and then working towards, can you talk a little bit about that, about, you know, kind of your experience with the collective and how you guys did that, bringing gifts as Raven did 
you, you know, kind of bringing gifts to the community, imagining what could be and how you guys kind of pulled that together. Well, thank you. And I'll say um, really briefly, what's interesting to think about for me anyway, of that time period is, um, and as we're talking about memoir, sorting through the multiple layers of memory in terms of what you experience in a particular time. And for me as a young, a young woman in my 20s who was breaking free of um, a lot of the things I think many of us struggle with with regard to where we fit in our families, what we are, who we are in our families. I was dealing with all of that at the same time that we were creating um, a way of thinking and talking about the work we wanted to do as Black radical women. Because one of the things about comedy that was fascinating is that it was the coming together of, um, at a, in the core group of six to eight women who were all at different ages coming to grips with a need to express individual personal power in concert with other people to achieve goals. Mm -hmm. And so much pushback that we were getting because of the sociopolitical and also um, the cultural uh, struggles that were happening with regard to Black men and Black women struggling for um, struggling and dealing with issues of patriarchy and heteronormativity, right? So you got a group of us who were unrepentant, nascent feminists and who had been thinking about um, Black feminism and what it meant to be a Black feminist before we even came together in, in Combahee. The thing that's really also interesting for me is that the quest for freedom was never about individual freedom. It was really about the collective freedom from the oppressions that we suffered as Black mm -hmm. women and as Black people. So, okay, so there's all of that. We were all um, political creatures when we came together, coming from a variety of backgrounds, really primarily and this goes to how we were able to write together. We had, I think, to a person, Barbara Beverly and I, um, well, stop one second. We were the writers, but it should be known that much of what we talked about in the two years prior to the writing of the statement, the conversations, the, the, the collective interactions between the dozens and dozens of Black women that came through um, the meetings that we would hold and the consciousness raising groups, it was a very, very fertile period and a great time of us creating ourselves. And it was not just the four of us. It was the result of, and as you know, with ancestors, we were merely the, the most current, um, I used to say we were the current minnows. We were the most recent iteration of what it meant to try to be a Black woman surviving in, the, in this so-called new world, so-called. Mm. And we were also um, keenly aware of the fact that the reason we wanted to be strong, the reason we wanted to be empowered is because you cannot build a world with half of the community being fully empowered. So, mm -hmm. and this was controversial. I mean, you know, you think no, and it's controversial today, but to just say, having the chance to write it, to write together, was so um, 
refreshing for me because I had not had good experiences in my educational background. I was a little bit precocious. I was writing from a young age, but I got punished for writing. And I know there may be some of you who have had that experience um, where the, the need to express is strong, you express, and then you are punished for it. So I found in Combahee the freedom and the space to bring my gifts of understanding and observation to a place where I would not have to explain and to use, you know, Charlene Carruthers word, which is, I'm so glad she's brought it to the fore, to be unapologetic about it. Mm. For the most part, I think the other thing that was really um, interesting for me is, and we were, someone, several of you have talked about, you know, what do you leave in? What do you take out? Um, it was interesting times to be a young black feminist in the 1970s because there were a lot of truth tellers breaking out all over, whether they were fiction writers, you know, political writers, essays, whatever. People were very invested in bringing truth to the fore and, you know, trying to look at what does that mean? And we're coming at, um, I remember so clearly that the story of what it meant, the story, not the political um, or sociological picture, but the actual stories of our lives, I always was aware that there were always missing stories. And I always felt that by coming to, I, I knew very clearly that in Compahy, we were writing a story that would somehow need to be written and also was a breaking free of storylessness. Seizing that narrative, creating the world that we wanted, not the world that was being forced upon us. One final thing I would say before I, um, I just to not go on and on, I, I, the one thing about all of us, and I think for myself, one of the reasons I'm writing this autobiographical, I mean, this political autobiography is that uh, right now, a lot of emphasis creatively through the film about the Black Panthers, the film about the Chicago Seven, um, and other and uh, popular culture, the film about Billie Holiday. Ironically, I feel like Zelig because I participated either in those movements or in the in the case of the Black Jazz Movement in Chicago. My parents were both very involved, so I was around people like Billie Holiday and and other folks, not participating obviously at four and five years old. But being in that milieu and being exposed to ideas about black power, which was called, you know, they didn't call it black power, but really being involved with people who were race people. When I was a toddler and a small child and just hearing their voices and the stories that they would tell, because many of them were part of the great migration. There are a lot of stories that are not being told that were taking place during these um, what are called social upheaval moments. And I feel like for one thing that's really true, we don't get enough of the stories of those of us who were in the mix, in the creation. We are excised. There's not a single black woman in the Chicago 7 movie. Mm. And it's very interesting because when I was in, well, it doesn't really matter. Well, I won't go into all the details now. When I think about the faces that I saw, there are a lot of stories that aren't being told. And I'm interested in telling those stories. So... Someone said earlier in this conversation, if you had been thinking that you might be memorialized, <laughs> you might have acted better. I, I think that's, I'm paraphrasing, but 
I think we have to mine our experiences and be mindful about um, being sensitive and aware, but also understanding. I think James Baldwin did it beautifully in telling the truth in a way that makes the truth so much deeply human and deeply representative of not just one story, but so many. Mm -hmm. I'll stop. Now for Janessa and Joy, you you guys are both um, you guys are both active in in your communities in your social you know in, in your faith community your social groups your schools and all of that. As you listen to this, you know, as you listen to like to earn, you know, Ernestine talking about, you know, kind of her journey and, and Raven's strategies for bringing gifts to the world, and you know, Caitlin talking about, you know, collective grief, and then. Um, you, you know, and then kind of imagining and Demita also about being in the midst of, of imagining this future we want to live in. This is kind of what both of you are doing, you know, in different ways in your community. So maybe Joy, we'll start with you. What are you, what is this giving you in terms of, of the imagining that you're doing for the work? Because you're, you're doing a lot of work in, in the school board and in your community of, you know, coming up against things that are not the way they could be. Right. It's honestly, it's a lot of it is what I'm getting is collective stories. And I am just like, I'm loving this because I'm kind of thinking back to my past and I grew up in Regent Park. And so, and there was a lot of activism going on then. And I was just, of course, a young in there. <laughs> so, and just kind of watching, you know, the, and it was all women led, right? And so watching, you know, the mothers, the aunties, the big sisters kind of lead this movement and collectively build it together and getting all the stories in and, it's just this, yeah, for me, it kind of highlights the importance of getting that collective word, that collective, getting the people behind the scenes. And so like, for me, I work with youth a lot. And so, and of course, they're often unrepresented in any stories, every story is certainly an education, <laughs> which is wild, but <laughs> nevertheless. Yeah. And so, um, and this is the thing, right? And so we're left with these gaps in knowledge um, that is not translated and is not, we're not going where we should be because we are not collectively building stories, futures, um, frameworks. And so there was that big kerfuffle this weekend, you know, just with like school unions and such. And just because people were not being heard and the more I hear about it, right? And that's kind of my takeaway right now. It's just, who's not being heard? Who do I need to be heard? And who do I have to bulldoze to make space for? And that's kind of how like I often refer to myself as the bulldozer because it's just <laughs> constantly like, hey, this person's not being heard. Hey, this person's not being heard. And people kind of count on me to do that. And it's really tiring, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I'm exhausted. And I'm really a nice person, but I, you know, I play such a meanie. <laughs> and I remind myself my mother, which is kind of scary, but good too. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's that. It's like, you know, and I got caught up. I was like, when listening to Demita, I'm like, Billie Holiday? What? Hey, Jazz? What? <laughs> so, and 
I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I need to. And, but there's also this gap because I was having this conversation with a friend today. There's also this gap from like hearing from sisters and aunties and mothers in terms of their collective movements, right? And so, and what I need to grow from this, right? And so in order to build it, you know, well, not my own to build one that's going to like you know build off that wisdom and that knowledge and that's so important so like the more stories I can read from people who have been there done that you know the better mm-hmm. that and stronger that I can kind of attack the issues in my little realm <laughs> <laughs> are you Janessa yeah I think um sort of like what uh, Joy was saying like I feel like I'm hearing a lot of like, um, just like collective, like working together and like collective work and stuff. And I was just thinking like for myself, like, um, I grew up evangelical and just like trying to figure out, um, what that means going forward. Like, how do I, how do I move forward from here? How do I, um, help empower like people whose stories, like Demita said, the stories that aren't being told enough, the stories that people aren't like um, listening to or being like broadcast. And like, with all the stuff that's been happening, like, I mean, we heard like, I think yesterday or was it today, there was that shooting in Atlanta. And yeah. the, the guy, the shooter was like, apparently like the son of like a youth pastor or a pastor or something like that. And like, what do you do with that? Like, how do you move forward? And um, like, how do I, I like, I don't, I want to distance myself from that and say like, that's not the type of like person or like, I guess like Christian that I would call myself, but also at the same time, I'm like, well, what do you do with like, what do you do with bad relatives? You know? And so Mm. ah, (laughs) it's a big question that I don't have an answer for. And I feel like I'm not the only person who can answer that or should answer that. And I feel like coming back to just like the collective, like, how do we collectively go forward from here? And how do we hear from the people who are being harmed by people like this shooter in extreme cases and um, make sure that this doesn't happen again? Like, How do we work together and um, continue on? So yeah, that's just sort of what I'm like thinking of and like trying to process as we're talking, but it's been really good. It's great to hear from all of you. So thank you. What do we do with bad relatives? Somebody else has been influenced by Alexis Shotwell. <laughs> that's Alexis's current, that's what she's working on right now. She's kind of coming off because we talk about, you know, as, you know, as indigenous peoples, you, you know, we talk about, it's not just who you claim, but who claims you back. Who do you, who claims right. you? And so Alexis uh, is a white woman. And so she's thinking, well, who claims me? Well, who claim, you know, who claims me? you know, as a mm-hmm. white woman who claims me. And then she realized, well, white supremacists claim me. Mm-hmm. What do mm-hmm. I do with that? Like she wasn't mm-hmm. just talking about racist Uncle Frank that you see at Thanksgiving. You know, she's talking about collectively, you, you know, who claims her. And, and so even though she doesn't claim them back, oh, what responsibility does that incur on her in terms of like how does she live in this world knowing that this is who claims her? Because you can't just pretend they don't. It's like, you know, like the shooter, you can't just, it would be easy to say, well, he's, he's not a real Christian it would be, you know, or, you know, or the churches who ran the residential schools or, you know, like any number of, you know, any number of those things, um, you know, well, they're not real Christians. Well, you know, at what point, like that's, that's 
crap, right? That's purity nonsense. You know, who's going to decide who the real ones are? So that's that's not kind of really where I was going, but that's just what you made me think about, Janessa. <laughs> but another another theme yeah. that was in these books, and not just in these books, but really in all of in in all of the memoirs, and it's probably you know just an inherent part of memoir is the idea of home. Loss of home yeah. is very familiar in all of these stories they're all they all talk about a loss of home and then they talk about returning home but as Ernestine talked about going home returning home and making home are not the same thing right like mm-hmm. you, don't just, you know you don't just go home and suddenly be at home um you, you know you go home and that's still a that's still a bit of a struggle as, as you build home can you talk a little bit about that Ernestine could you talked about going home how did you build home once you got there build mm. build those relationships when I came back to Juneau after 25 years the um I left uh, two years after statehood in 1961. And so ANCSA, which is the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act had occurred in that time. The um, uh, Prudhoe Bay had, everything had happened while I was gone. And when I came back to Juneau, I didn't recognize, everything was new. Everything had been built since 1971 when the oil hit. But then, um, but then I walked um, up the hill a little bit and um, passed our old property in the village and um, towards the old graveyard and the mountain was still there. And um, I realized that um, for me, it was place. And um, I hadn't kept in touch with anyone all those 25 years. And my family was small to begin with. And um, my mother hadn't kept in touch with anyone either. And I came back not because of of anything except I felt this was where I belonged and where I needed to spend the rest of my life. I did want to say, uh, to respond to some of the comments I noted that everyone mentioned story. And um, I think we all agree that everything has life. Everything is alive and that Mm. includes stories. And I think that our um, reciprocal relationship with, with living stories is that stories, um, we are the vehicles by which stories present themselves to the world. And Mm -hmm. it cheers me to hear the stories and the voices that are are finding their vehicles to present themselves to the world. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thanks, Ernestine. Caitlin, you had written, and this is, you know, what Ernestine talked about the mountain. In your book, you talk about physical places or spiritual places. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just a really a really beautiful and important thing to remember. And you've just moved, so you are also in the process of making home. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, part in and what I was also thinking when you brought this up is that I also write about yeah having this um, 
for me, like this journey of writing this book and over the last few years has been returning home even to my own body and to my own stories and to my own trauma in a way, like naming trauma, naming some things that I never knew how to name before um, when I was young is a, has been a way of me returning home to myself. So even making a home in my own body um, in my story has allowed me to make room to engage with the homes of other people or the mm -hmm. homes of other creatures. And, and so I also write about how like we have to help each other get home. Like we have to help each other get home, home to each other, you know, like, and that's, that's the beauty of story is it's this invitation to um, engage someone else's experiences. And, and, and sometimes it brings us home to ourselves in a way that we can't even always explain. And so, yeah, we we moved to Vermont about eight months ago. And so all of, all of my book native was sort of written living, you know, um, in Atlanta on Muskogee Creek, Cherokee land. And now, um, now I'm in Vermont. And so it has been kind of introducing myself and asking permission as we are here to make a home um, and getting to know all the creatures and all of these, you know, all of this, this here. Um, but yeah, I think that that has been really important to me is, is learning to come home to myself and making a home there and then letting what flows out of that be then a way to help all of us, you know, find our way home. I'm hearing a lot about reciprocal relationships. Yeah, I'm hearing I'm hearing a yeah. lot a lot about that. Demita, can you talk a little bit about making home? Because you've made home. I mean, you have made home with the with the collective. You've made home. I don't know when we when we talked before. You were kind of out in the very backwoods of Massachusetts. With yes, I was. <laughs> um, and, and I have to also say. I don't know if anyone else is feeling it, but sometimes in some of these conversations, and I'm loving this conversation, by the way, um, it's just delicious to be in a situation where it makes me want to cook for us. I was just thinking as we were talking, it's like someone should bring in the soup now yeah. so that we can break bread and have that, that part of the conversation. Yeah. That sense of home, um, I it's so evocative. It's a very key part of two of the essays that I'm writing about what it means to be, oh, I love, by the way, Caitlin, I think you just mentioned the thing about being at home in your body yeah. and embodying home in your body. Mm -hmm. I, it's so, that resonates for me because what I was going to say is that for me, in terms of my family, in terms of my own life history, um, has been a constant migration, a constant moving, a constant trying to reform where we live to make it better. My mother was a striver in that way, as a single parent. Um, she was a hustler in that way. And so for me, the ability to drop into a new place and immediately make home, to clean it, to organize it, to, to make it beautiful to the extent that I can, to make it um, um, inviting in a, in a, I can't explain it, well, I guess I could, but I guess the thing I'm trying to say is that for me, home creation is probably one of the most magical things that we do. And creating in a hostile world, in a world that has so much um, that's not reflecting the very best of humanity, 
home, when you can have it be a place of sanctuary and have a sense of sanctuary, is very precious. Mm-hmm. So I think that notion of, and it's very interesting. I feel like I have lived in an enormous variety of circumstances in my 68 years. And I, again, going back to story, have lived amongst and with many different types and sorts of folk. And the blessing of that has been in my small little realm, my tiny world, seeing a lot of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's been um, very um, nourishing in a lot of ways. So I also want to say, all joking aside, I am Susie Homemaker. (laughs) (laughs) I love cooking, sewing, growing food, you know, cutting wood. I love all the things that go into making home life. And I find it for me, it helps me as a writer. It helps me as a creator. It helps me as someone who also tries to generate a lot of um, energy and work towards doing good work. And you've got to, I need, I have to have a place, a sense of some sense of place that is nurturing and nourishing. And I think one thing I should say is that Kambi was a, an interesting period of time in my life. I'm not, I would never go back to the twenties for anything. There's no amount of money that would make me go back to that era of my life. One thing I will say though, is that we were very bold about exploring, not always successfully, but exploring what it means to be in collectivity, to be in collective, to be interdependent, to work interdependent, interdependently. So we, you know, as I said, we did some things really well. We were able to have a sense of connection and if you will, home with one another. And you know that Barbara Smith's book, Home Girls, mm-hmm. Barbara Smith wrote a book called mm-hmm. Home Girls. And one of the things about home for African-American women, again, because of the notion of my, because of the issue of migration, forced migration, migration, flight, um, fle- you know, fleeing, you know, flight of Babylon. These are some of the stories that for us were extremely, um, they were just representative of so many stories of the women that came, so many of the stories of the women that came through Compagnie. And so trying that balance of needing to flee, but then also needing to create home, the fluidity and the, fl- the flexibility you need to be able to do that. So these are some of the things that I, I guess um, I want to work with in talking about the entire issue of home and, and place. Hmm. <sighs> Thank you, Tamina. Janessa, that uh, sounds a lot like the history of the Métis people. Yes. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yes, it does. I was thinking, um, like, even in my own family, like, I say, oh, I'm, well, I'm in Niagara now, like, St. Catherine's sort of close to Patty. Um, but then I'm like, people ask me, I'm like, yeah, I'm from tiny Ontario. But then if I go back further, I'm like, oh, my people aren't even from Tiny. Like we were forced off this other place and migrated to Tiny. And now we just say, well, most people say Penetang Machine. And I'm just like, that's just the story of so many Mm -hmm. people, so many other indigenous people too, like a displaced people on our own lands. It's just, yeah. So how does story keep us connected, Janessa? (sighs) Oh my gosh, that's such a big question. Because the mm. Métis are, are storytellers, right? I mean, and, 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 like, 
your photography is a form of storytelling. Um, mm -hmm. Music is a form of storytelling, right? The Métis, you know, you know the Métis fiddle, which I was in, introduced to in Cape Breton of all places. Um, <laughs> uh. But those things are also part of story about kind of sharing history. So I don't know, like, do you have any thoughts about that? I'm just kind of randomly throwing things out here now. Oh, that's okay. I was actually thinking about, um, I recently sort of stumbled upon this one author who I say she's from like my like home community. So like Penetang machine, like tiny and her name, her name is Sherry um, Dim Dimling. Mm. I can't, I'm not sure if I can. Yeah. And I started, I bought one of her um, just like novels and it's just like a fiction, but I started reading it and the way that she ties in aspects of like the community and the land and like the place into her story it just makes it like my heart is so happy when I was reading it I was like this is like this is my these are my people these are my cousins you know and mm -hmm. so I just feel like story it connects you to place and to people no matter like how far apart you are and it's kind of wild how it just has that power so I haven't quite finished the book yet because I was reading a bunch of memoirs for this month, but um, I'm, ex I'm excited to keep reading it. And even when she like in the opening bit, she talked about like the uh, like migration of um, my ancestors to like Penetang. And I was just like, I never thought I would read this in a book like this. And it's just mm -hmm. yeah, it's so cool. It's so powerful, I think. Betty, that, that reminds me of, you know, whenever you do a book proposal, um, they always ask you what your target audience is. And I think it is like the most difficult question for me because mm -hmm. I want to write books that reach all sorts of people, but at the same time, you know, you're supposed to write to a specific audience, you know, so I'm, I'm writing books for majority, probably white Christians. And yet I want my words and my stories to bring healing or to speak something to many different people. And it's really difficult, but that's like the power of telling stories is that you get a chance to mirror something that someone could maybe see, even if they're not like me, um, even if our stories are different, maybe they catch a glimpse of something that allows them to examine a part of their own story, you know? And I think that that is, mm -hmm something we can't even understand as we write books is that at some point the book will take on a life of its own and it's going to reach someone somewhere and we'll, we may never know unless they tell us um but I've had atheists read my book and and I've had um my Jewish friends read my book and I've you know and I've had um other people who identify as mixed read the book and um and I've just been I'm so grateful you know because that target audience, like, how do you pinpoint these things? Like, can my target audience be like humans? Is that okay? Yeah. All, all <laughs> humans. <laughs> humans my target audience. Maybe <laughs> a few rappers. Rappers. <laughs> yeah. My okay. target audience is right. <laughs> <laughs> you do this collectively, will it catch on? Can we do that? <laughs> can I, can I, I'd love to make a point about something though. It might be worth it to bifurcate the whole concept of, of what you're looking at in terms of who you're writing for. There's the, there's the commerce, there's the commercial dimension, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're writing a book, it's not to, you know, people are, you know, books are, are simply to sell them, make money, et cetera. So that's one slice. Mm -hmm. But I think 
Tony, I think Toni Morrison was right um, completely when she talked about the fact that she wrote for Black people, for example. That's her thing. She wasn't worried about writing for the for white folks. And her notion was in the same way that we universalize mm-hmm. the the white gaze and the white mind, it might be worth it to think about the fact that starting from the juncture of universalizing the black perspective, and that she and that's what made her brilliant. Mm-hmm. She wrote purely from that perspective, which which made an illumination that opened up a perspective that anyone could share. Mm. Um, you know, you kind of dare anyone to read Beloved and not be touched, right? Yeah. No matter who you are. So I think, you know, it, it's, that, it's that strange place we find ourselves you know, under late stage capitalism where, you know, you, you have to sell yes. something mm-hmm. and, the, and the commodification of it. And yet also for any of you folk who are on this call who are, and I think it's all of you, genuinely um, um, searching souls interested in expression, interested in, these are all things that are not quantifiable. And as I said to someone recently, the most beautiful things in this world are not for sale. So I just, it's important to make sure you keep that precious part of you that's writing about what enlivens you and energizes you and leaves the commercial dimension slightly to the right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Who did you write for, Ernestine? That's, um, I'm, I was sitting here wondering that, and um, my- You looked thoughtful. I, um, my, my uh, most treasured comments about my, my first book, Blonde Indian, has always been when other Alaska Native people tell me that I told their story when I told my mm-hmm. story, because we all went through so much um, together. Okay. We are, you know, the Alaska Native people who survived the 20th century are walking wounded. Mm-hmm. And um, when I mm-hmm. talked about things that I went through, mm-hmm and had other Alaska Native people tell me that's exactly what happened to them. I, um, I, felt, uh, I felt validated. And um, I think that for Blonde Indian, I didn't have a particular audience, but that's the audience that I received the most satisfaction from. For Dow of Raven, I think I wrote that for white people. Um, I wrote that so, you know, because with Blonde Indian, I had people who grew up with me in Juneau say they had no idea. White people had no idea. Native people said that's exactly how it happened. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I wrote the next book, Tower of Raven, for white people to read because clearly they had no idea what was going on behind the dry fish curtain and um i i wanted to give give them an understanding an opportunity to understand um how things look from a different perspective so on my next book that i hope to start 
assembling soon when I find my, when when I can move into my next forever home. Um, mm-hmm. My next book, um, I think, is going to be more. So I went from. Um, from personal story and my culture. And then I went to um, the Tower of Raven about social equity and kind of political people tell me. And then the next one, I think I, I want to, um, I'm 75 years old and I recognize mm-hmm. patterns in my life. And I see myself being faced with the same lessons over and over again and yeah. I want to learn my lessons now so I don't have to come back and learn them again yeah. um, so um, that's going to be my next book and so I guess that will be for myself yes oh, oh. <laughs> so there's moving targets it's not just our lives and our stories that are moving targets our audiences our are moving audience too, too. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. That's really joy. What are you thinking as you're embarking on your first? Now I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. This talk, like it's just just so much wisdom in the room and I'm just kind of soaking it all in and I'm trying not to get emotional. And so I'm like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. <laughs> right? But you know, how long has it been since like we've actually just had a chance to kind of sit around tables and listening to wisdom from each other, right? Mm-hmm. And from our different, very different walks of life and experience. Um, for me, I really resonate with home. And so like, it's just because I'm writing about my experience growing up in a community that doesn't exist anymore. So I grew up in like uh, Canada's oldest um, housing community. And so, um, but they gentrified it, so it's gone. And so, (laughs) which really sucks. (laughs) And it kind of reverberates through my life too, right? And I think about like, you know, my ancestors, we were talking about migration patterns. And so, you know, being Afro-Indigenous, right? There is a lot of migration within my family, you know, from having to, you know, not be accepted on reserves to moving to, you know, communities and, you know, then being targeted because they're Black. And it's just like, it's on and on. So there is, you know, that place was home and it's kind of gone now so it's like how do we kind of move forward as you know and there's still people from that community and of course we're all in contact with each other right and so and you know you pick up with that community and your home but it's really hard nowadays, like just with COVID and everything, right? There's no, you know, community celebrations or anything. So it's really interesting as I navigate and when I think about like, you know, and I'm listening to, you know, Ernestine and um, Demita talk about like, who are they writing for? I'm like, and for me and, and Caitlin too, it's like, I'm writing for my community. Like that is, well, the physical community is no longer there. We've evolved and kind of brought mm. our flavor of region into, you know, now Scarborough has me, so oh God help them. But <laughs> this is the thing. Yeah. So as I kind of, I'm just, I'm kind of soaking it all in and just like I'm making notes as we're going along because I'm like, oh, this is really interesting to kind of just also home being self too and kind of naming and going through that uh, memoir and all those um I guess items of your life, right? And just seeing like, oh, 
yeah, maybe I should name that, <laughs> right? Mm. Or, geez, maybe I need therapy over that, right? Mm. Or, you know, no, I'm <laughs> mm. but also, wow, I really kicked ass there too. So it doesn't have to all be negative, but like just kind of also recognizing that strength and just kind of how it flows through like myself. Um, I'm crafty too, and I'm trying to remember where I got it from my mom is not right and felt like elderly community take girl around and we'd go have our girls so she'd make us do crafts and sometimes we hated it sometimes we lived that was still great on right and so interesting. I don't know a lot lately <laughs> so it transforms <laughs> and so I'm like yeah it evolves and I'm kind of you know I, yeah. I when I give talks I love giving definitions of words to people I don't know why I just do and the definition of the word story one of the definitions kind of speaks to our capability of evolving because like that word evolve is in in the definition of a story because the stories we tell are meant to evolve they're meant to transform so I think that's really beautiful that you brought that up because that's exactly they're not meant to be static you know like that's they're amazing. meant to change and kind of recreate and teach us things and that's that's the beauty of it yes my goodness what are you creating now Janessa Janessa's also taking all kinds of notes. I can see here. So what you know, you know, so when we're talking about creating and you know, kind of who our audience is, you talked earlier about um, being really mindful of how you're how how you're recording people when you're when you're taking their photographs. So when you think about about creating an audience and your and your photography, which is a form of storytelling, how do you reflect on that? Um, well, right now, I actually, I, I'm just in a bit of a, a time where I've taken a bit of a step back from photographing other people, just because I was lots of factors, but I was feeling a little bit burnt out. And then um, as a wedding photographer, COVID was not the best um, season to be shooting weddings. <laughs> um, but I've kind of been thinking about like turning uh, the camera like on myself and trying to reflect on how how, how do I want other people to see me and um, how do I want other people to see what I value? Um, so I haven't really shot anything yet, but I'm working, I'm trying to work on something with my like sister right now, <laughs> just like the connection mm -hmm. between sisters and families and um, stuff like that. So it's kind of where I'm at right now, but. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're just going to kind of go around for some for some last reflections on, I mean, Kim Talbert says, I mean, I, I, ever since she had said that, made this comment on, on Twitter about identity being a poor substitute for relations, that um, really makes me think about the way we use the word identity. A memoir is about, mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of about identity. I mean, it's... You, it's about who we see ourselves and how we think about ourselves um, and how we reflect ourselves, um, you, you know, back into, you know, into how, you know, the mirrors and the windows 
um, that we have, you know, the, that reflect us out and then that help us to see uh, other people. But when Kim said that, it, it made me think of our identity existing in, in relationships, not in, you know, not, not in mm -hmm. me, but in the relationships, you know, that I have. So kind of as we, as we wrap up all of these thoughts, and I've got pages of notes here, of you know, some really... <laughs> Just, to, you know, some neat ideas and things that people ha have talked about. How do our, you know, just to reflect on our relationships and how we find identity and how we build, particularly right now in COVID. And like, we're not sitting down and having and having tea together and, and Janessa's drinking tea, but we're not all drinking tea together. <laughs> you know, we're not having a soup that I would love to share with, you know, with, with Danita one day because she's probably yeah. a great cook and I'm really like good cooks. Um, so how do we, how do we maintain these relationships? How do we, you know, Caitlin, you've just moved to a whole new state in the midst of a pandemic. How do you make friends? How do we form the, you know, these mm. connections where our identity sits in, in relationship with other people? Great question. Good distillation. That's a really big question. <laughs> because really I'm, I'm reading Miriam Kaba's book right now and she admits in one of the essays that she doesn't like people and I was like yes I love you because I don't particularly like people but I do enjoy these conversations I enjoy them very much <laughs> but I was just so happy to see her admit that and yet she's she does so much work like all of her work is with people yeah um and yeah, you know, and my friends used to joke that I was the anti-social social worker. <laughs> so, <laughs> how do you do social work when you don't like people? And yet there I was. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can I make a point about identity? Yes. This is Demita. Um, and this has been incredibly wonderful. I, I, I'm so... Um, enlivened by all of your voices, just really grateful. I think one of the things that I learned, and this is over the arc of my life, my identity, part of the, the preciousness of life for me is holding my inner self um, in the palm of my hand gently, because I know one thing about myself, I am constantly changing. And I don't... Um, I, I don't do well with people trying to restrict my freedom to change. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I relationship I can no longer sustain relationships where people need me to be a certain thing for them, mm. uh, or or want to project that. I feel like the most powerful thing that I've learned about identity is the sacredness of the evolution of the soul. I mean, that's why I think I came here. So I, I feel like um, also identity for me over my life, different parts of me have come to the fore, other parts have receded. But as a human, as a human, I feel like my identity has become more faceted over time um, with my love, dislikes, the things you find. And I am willing to use any part of it that truly can be used for the social good, but I also don't want to be kept captive mm 
by it. I want always have the space to grow, evolve, and change. So for me, identity is about that. And thank you, all of you. Thanks, Demita. Mm. I love that. That's that's similar to to my answer. I think on a very um, on a very sort of practical level, relationships right now. Um, something that has helped helped me during COVID is being able to um, have flowers delivered to certain friends or mm-hmm. family and sending handwritten cards. Like those are just two oh. things that have sort of held me over the last year um, is being able to just send a bouquet of flowers that can be delivered to someone's door, no contact, or just like getting a note in the mail or sending a letter to let people know that I love them has been for me very, just a space that has felt healing. Um, but then the, the identity thing, it's the same, I struggle with the boxes and the labels that I'm constantly put in. And when you become a public persona, uh, you know, people really feel like they need those boxes or labels for you. And mm-hmm. I really struggle as well because um, the beauty of being human is our, like a, that definition of story is our capability of evolving and transforming. That's, that's a gorgeous thing that fluidity of who we are you know and what we embody Mm -hmm. and um unfortunately that you know that um isn't seen as a good thing in a lot of spaces it's you know people get uncomfortable when they can't get you in the box that they need um and so people don't like people because people do bad things like that (laughs) yeah it's hard it's hard and so then yes it's like um certain relational aspects have to be put to the side and then you have to just trust your own journey and trust the people who honor that journey in a way and so i think that that's been where I'm trying to find myself is to trust myself to know my own journey and then to know know the others I can trust and I think COVID has actually just made clearer who those people are you know that we are holding the space for one another's journeys and and that's the that's the space that I I have to be able to hold so I've heard other people talk about sending handwritten notes. I personally have not done it. I'm not a good friend. Um, It is lovely that other people are doing it. (laughs) It is, that is, that is really lovely. And I periodically, I get messages from people on on Facebook and they just send me a private message and they'd be like, yeah, so I'm just checking in with, you know, with my friends to see how, to see how they're doing. And I'm like, that's really sweet. I haven't checked in on anybody. Except my mother. I do. I do see my mother. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't, I have to remember to check in on my kids. (laughs) I mean, thank goodness for the family group chat. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. My kids are all grown, though. You can't report me to CAS for not paying attention. I don't know, man. In Ojibwe, in Ojibwe um, cosmology, they chose me, so this is their fault. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ernestine, thinking about about our identity and where it sits in the relationships we have with other people. It made me remember that when I was gone, like I said, for twenty five years, and 
didn't keep touch with anyone. Ah, my people. I think we can say that our lives and our stories are moving targets insofar as um, it concerns the circumstances of our lives. But our mm -hmm. identity, at least, at least in you know where I come from and who I am, um, even though I was gone for 25 years, I my identity remained the same. And when I returned home, I was still who I was, and I still had the relationships that I had had previously. Because in the Clinket culture, our relationships are uh, formed by our clan, and so the mm -hmm. house that I belong to, the clan I belong to, the um, moiety I belong long to um, identifies me and I can show back up after 25 years and tell mm. them who my mother is and I have a place in my mm. community and so I think we all carry a certain mm. identity with us and that identity defines and and um, nurtures our relationships even though it may have been 25 years since we were there or with someone or maybe they're even gone now but we still hold that identity and that relationship i really want to mm. say really quick um uh, i uh decolonize smash the patriarchy undo yes. capitalism resist yes yes i love yes. her yes. she's that's that's <laughs> being out of touch with people for 25 years and smashing all the things you're i'm telling you personal hero <laughs> i like to say smash the patriarchy because it ain't gonna smash itself that's right that's, exactly that's right, right. <laughs> That's right. We're, we got some heck yes coming from the chat. <laughs> right now, we do need food. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we do. Janessa? I feel like I have a lot of like big thoughts, but I'm like not sure how to broadcast those thoughts. Um, but I was thinking about like just when like Demita and you're talking about like identity and like holding holding like uh, your inner self like gently and then mm -hmm. sort of just like not holding on to holding on too tightly to certain aspects of yourself because like they change or like the story the story of your life as it goes on it can change too um so I was thinking just about that a little bit and like I'm like I have such a hard time with that sometimes because it's just like I feel like if I'm this thing I can't be this thing and I have a hard time mm -hmm. taking myself out of these boxes that um, mm -hmm. I guess I've put myself in or perhaps like people around me have maybe sort of put myself in and it can be tough sometimes. But I was also just thinking um, after Ernestine was talking um, about smashing the patriarchy, that was great. But <laughs> just also like, mm -hmm. um, like the people who like, you know, she hadn't seen in like 25 years, but how like um, identity holds and defines like our relationships I think you said and I was just thinking about how I'm just recently uh, was like reconnecting with some like of my like Métis cousins from like Penetang and just like how much life I get from like the chat that we have going mm -hmm. on on like uh, Facebook <laughs> and stuff like that and it's just like yeah like it's such a cool way to like express yourself and like you just come in and they're just like yep 
yeah, you're just, you've always been one of us. Like, mm-hmm. this is just who you are. So that's yep. what I'm about. That's awesome. I came yeah. across somebody on Twitter whose Twitter bio said uh, Obishkokang, which is Laksul. That's, you, you know, the, the, the white pine narrows that I lost my mind on her in, um, in chat. I was like, Laksul, ah! we were like chatting with instant relatives. Because, right. You know, and you start exchanging last names and, and I'm sure yeah. anybody from a small community understands. You, you know, reserve, non-reserve, you know, any small community is going to understand that as soon as you start, you start finding people in common and like you talk to mm-hmm. you know, immediately you, you, you fit into that place and then, you know, your yeah. identity rests in, in those, in those relationships that, mm-hmm. that exist, whether, you, you know, they're there. We just, yeah. we just need to find them and acknowledge them, but they're there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that the, this poor woman, you know, she was happy too. Um, but it was, just, it was just so fun when we find each other. If I find another Wesley, I get all excited because obviously we're cousins. Um, although mm-hmm. maybe, you know, I don't know, but yeah, from Northwestern Ontario, if you're Ojibwe and you're Wesley, we're probably related. Um, so, <laughs> so that's fine. So Joy, we're just gonna, we're just gonna wind up with you. No pressure. Um, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> I have lots of big thoughts too, but I'm not sure they're very coherent. Um, well, I just, first of all, massive gratitude for this space. It's just been, you know, very, it's been a heart space. And so massive love and gratitude. Um, I guess in terms, I mean, relationships and identity, like I feel a lot of what Janessa says and just kind of like, when you go into your community and I can go back to, you know, our fragmented Regent Park community and I'm like, oh, I'm Betty's daughter. And they're like, oh, you're mm-hmm. Betty's daughter. Oh my God, Betty. And they either love me or they hate me based on their relationship <laughs> with my mom. Cause she was like, you know, she's got a cranky, but I love her. For it. <laughs> so, but it's that, right. And they're kind of like, oh, are you cranky too? But like, it's just, you know, when we get together, it's like, that is your home. Right. And so, and I also feel, you know, it's strange because within the Afro-Indigenous community too, right? It's just instantly your home because it's just such a place of survival and we're here and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, I'm a friend of so-and-so and you generally know what community this person is from. And so, but I mean, yeah, I think like identity for me, it is a lot of your relationships. And so I occupy lots of spaces and just in terms of, but at the same time, I don't want to click those check boxes either. And I'm kind of like, I'm some hitting middle age. I'm kind of like, I don't want to hit these. I'm like, I want to be the cranky middle-aged lady who's like, I just want to do whatever the the hell I want to do and not like be this person or that person or that person I just want to say the stuff that I want to say and you know not I guess um I want to say perform identity sometimes because it feels that way for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and so and I had this panel where I was kind of like it'd be nice to not just kind of perform not to be you know and I feel like I'm kind of pigeonholed into like activist or you know uh child and youth care practitioner right or you know it's like Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of like people, whether it's in my Regent Park community, whether it's in like the urban indigenous community, we kind of find, find ways to work in the same space. It's like, oh, you're a social worker too. Yeah, well, okay, here I am, right? And so I just, I don't want to necessarily be in those spaces and just kind of make my own identity based on the relationships I've had and the relationships I do have. And, you know, the hopefully awesome relationships I will have. 
Yeah. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you so much, everybody. This was such a great conversation. I took lots of notes. I have lots of thoughts. And I just really appreciate each of you you know, sharing the things that you've shared about story, about smashing the patriarchy and decolonizing and holding, holding ourselves gently. I mean, I think that's, that's something that, that I'm really gonna, going to take forward from this is, you know, making home with myself, with, you know, in my own body, mm -hmm. holding myself, holding myself gently, having that place in my community you know, you know, based on who my family is, I'm sure my kids probably get that reaction when people find out that I'm their mother. They're like, oh, she's cranky like her. <laughs> so, and Rot Joy, I have pigeonholed you whenever I need a badass, I call Joy. <laughs> so that's the box I put you in. <laughs> so thank you so much. We'll be back um, next month talking. Uh, Daniel Heath Justice will be back. Chanda Prescott Weinstein uh, will be with us with her new book, um, uh, uh, Disordered Cosmos. I don't have it within arms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and Daniel is just one of my favorite people. I just really, um, any excuse to talk to Daniel. So he'll be back and we'll begin to be talking about um, being surrounded by relatives. So I hope to see, I hope to see people in the chat and you guys are welcome to, you know, to come and hang out on the chat or uh, lurk. And uh, thank you again, so much gratitude to all of you for being here. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Ombe streams live throughout 2021 on www.twitch.tv slash patty with a y underscore wbk on the third wednesday of every month episodes are archived there as highlights and released as podcasts to those who are subscribed to medicine for the resistance medicine for the resistance is a podcast i co-host with carrie goring where we explore themes similar to the conversation you just heard the colonial project wants to control how and if we see each other our work is in investigating the stories we were not told so that we do. You can support this work at Patreon slash pay your rent or by buying us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can find out more about me and the things I do at daanis.ca where I post transcripts for these episodes as well as thoughts on my blog. You can sign up for my newsletters. You can find me on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S if you want to talk about the things you've heard. Thank you to Pearlie Papineau for her editing skills and Liz Barkley for the transcripts. <laughs>